justice. What is justice? How do we define it? How do we execute it? You know, this word justice is thrown around today with so many variations that our culture, in America at least, can never seem to come to a consensus on it. Never have we in America been so inundated with so many justice issues that the plethora of definitions leaves one confused, offended, afraid, misunderstood, angry, and on it goes. And there's many issues, but there doesn't seem to be a solution in sight. Opinions vary while nothing changes. Racial disparities haven't changed. The poor, the marginalized have not been fully cared for. And yet, why is that? Why is it that man cannot solve his own problems to seemingly very solvable issues? Before I get into the biblical view of justice, I want to describe to you the two versions or the, the, the main two main definitions of justice. The first is called retributive. The term retributive justice refers to a theory of justice that's found on the idea of punishment or punitive justice. In fact, it, it can refer to as a system of justice that focuses on the punishment of the offender. Uh, so it's defined as a theory of justice that views punishment as the best response to crime or morally acceptable response to crime. So for instance, in Exodus 22.1, God says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and, and four sheep for a sheep. So God made these laws in Israel to protect the citizens and the community and their property. It's a retributive form of justice. The second form of justice is called restorative justice. This justice emphasizes things that serve to repair relationships or restore a community. A faith with God and a trespass against the Lord to restore that faith. For instance, in Numbers 5, 5 through 7, it says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man can, commits any of the sins that the people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for the wrong, adding a fifth to it, and giving it to him whom he did the wrong. So the idea is restoring something that was taken away and to restore something back to the community that was lost. In a sense, you could say maybe adoption is restorative justice. It's addressing the justice, the injustice of fatherlessness. And you cannot read the Bible without seeing God's heart for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. In fact, I can find nowhere in Scripture the term motherless. It doesn't mean that moms are not important, but if you look up the word fatherless in the Bible, it is all over the place. Fatherlessness is an injustice. In fact, in Israel, they had they, God commanded the people when they gleaned their fields to leave the outer edges unharvested, and that was left for the poor. They didn't have a welfare system back then. That was the welfare system. 
So in order to understand justice, more importantly, biblical justice, we must first look through the cultural lenses that kind of define where we're at. And I'm just going to give you three, but I'm sure there's many more. There's the lens of individualism. This message is going to be a little heady, so keep with me and we'll get to the application at the end. Individualism emphasizes personal responsibility over communal responsibility. So the theory is you need to have your house in order before you go solving the world's problems. That's the idea. But the criticism of individualism is it kind of privatizes a relationship with God and Jesus. And it closes me off to the complexities and nuances of systemic social injustice. And that's, that's the critique of individualism. And then there's dualism. Dualism in Christian thought is the two ideas that are separated, the spiritual and the physical. It kind of plays off uh, Plato's theory of dualism. In fact, D.A. Carson says the argument is like, we divide the spiritual above from the secular below. And you see, if I can punch my ticket to heaven and be with God, then I don't have to worry about, and I have no responsibility of, of the world around me. That's the critique there. And then lastly, fear, fear-based lens. Social justice has been shaped through the lens of fear in our culture, no doubt about it. And in our culture today, we see this played out in two camps. One group responded by challenging systemic sin or systemic injustice, but also removed Jesus as the one who ultimately enacts the justice and righteousness of God in the world. The other camp reacts in fear to the first group by stressing personal salvation as the key to solving the world's injustice without addressing the systemic social issues of the day. So part of the problem is the root word justice is also misunderstood or used by different groups in different ways. And that's the problem that we face. Whose injustice are we talking? Whose justice are we talking about? There has to be a moral standard somewhere, but whose moral standard is the correct one? And it's no wonder we're facing so many issues as a culture that nothing can get done. There's been more outcry against injustice, but nothing has, has gotten done. The poor are still poor. Fatherlessness is at an all-time high. Our politicians are pretty much worthless, both Republicans and Democrats. In fact, the Oxford English Dictionary defines social justice as justice in terms of the distribution of wealth opportunities and privileges within a society, but hardly ever define justice as the quality of just being fair and reasonable. So how do you define fair and reasonable? What's the standard? Well, let's look at equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. Equality of outcome looks to ensure that people who are disadvantaged make gains. So, for instance, our culture says there should be just as many female CEOs as male CEOs. That's what they say. That there needs to be a level playing field. I'm going to make some of you mad today. Just so you know. But don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll bring the gospel into all of this. So if there's just as many female CEOs as there are male CEOs, well, what about the problem? Say, let's take the WNBA, for instance. 
Why do WNBA female basketball players get paid less than NBA players? Well, equality of outcome would argue to raise the level of salaries of the female athletes to those of the male athletes, even though the WNBA is a subsidized league of the NBA, draws a fraction of the fan base, they have no TV contracts, and draw a, less than a fifth of the fans as NBA players do. Then you look at equality of opportunity, which looks to ensure, the argument there is, looks to ensure that everyone has the same opportunities to make those gains. At its core, equal opportunity means that people are given an equal chance to compete. So the idea, the argument, is to remove prejudices from the selection process so that everyone gets a a fair shot at, at success. So the end goal of this playing field is is to level it and to have a society where the most important and presumably highest qualified people are are actually meeting those job requirements. In other words, the argument is factors such as race, gender, how well-connected your friends and relatives shouldn't play a part in where you end up in life. But there's a problem. The majority of nurses are female. Is that fair? The majority of bricklayers are male. Is that fair? The majority of the care fields, nursing, teachers, are overwhelmingly female. The majority of jobs in the STEM fields, that is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, are overwhelmingly male. So how do we as Christians tackle this issue? What about racial injustices? How do white people respond to racism? How do minorities respond to racism? What about abortion? Is it my body or my choice? Or is it the life of the child that's the most important? What about gay marriage? Is it about allowing people freedom to redefine the institution of marriage? Or is it protecting the sanctity of marriage? What about the poor? Is the answer adding more money to government programs to care for the poor and marginalized? Or is it to create better opportunities for economic growth for those who truly want it? What about gun violence? Do we take away everyone's firearms or do we put more guns into people's hands with the goal of making a safer society? What about health care? Do we, do we uh, impose a universal governmental health care system or do we loosen the regulations and allow the free markets to work within the health care system? What about vaccines? Should we all continue to get booster shot after booster shot or not take the shot at all and allow natural immunity to run its course? How do you define sexual harassment in our culture? Should you be reprimanded for using the wrong pronouns? Are you racist if you reject the tenets of the LGBTQ plus? Are you righteous if you affirm it? As you can see, I've listed off all of these things and there's many more. The one thing, the most important thing I've left out of this list is how does God see all of this? How does all of these issues look through a biblical lens? Now, if you think the Bible is some antiquated book of stories that's there to just sort of guide us along and you don't really see it as inspired, then none of what I'm about to say will make sense to you. And chances are you're letting the cultural culture around you define what social justice is and is not. However, if you believe that this book 
is the true, inspired, inerrant word of God, you will understand and see through God's eyes what justice really is. And I'm going to get to that. And now let's look at our passage. Look with me at verse 31 of Matthew chapter 25. Jesus says this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right but the goats on His left. You see, we must first understand that justice is not some set of guidelines or moral definitions. It's not only that, but justice is tied to the very nature of God. You see, this section of scripture is famously known as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives just before he was arrested. And he in two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25, gave the disciples an overview of his second coming. This is Jesus explaining the events leading up to and his second coming. Now here in our passage today, Jesus is explaining what he will do when he arrives a second time. The second advent. He'll establish his throne in Jerusalem after he defeats Antichrist at the end of the tribulation period. See 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 8. And of course, I realize that there are those in the room that have a different view. But this is where I'm at in my eschatology. So if you don't understand it, I'll just explain it to you on the way up. So once Jesus sits on his throne, he'll gather all nations. That was a joke, by the way. Uh, it, you can laugh. Throw, throw me a bone here, people. Come on. I'm trying to lighten up a heavy subject. Once he sits on his throne, Jesus will gather all the nations to him where he will sort them all out. And those who trusted Jesus by faith will enter the kingdom and those who rejected him will be thrown into the conscious eternal torments of hell. So when Jesus returns in his glory, he will not only judge the nation Israel, as in the parable of the ten virgins previously, but he will also judge the Gentile nations as well. In fact, the word nations there in the Greek is the word ethnos, where we get our English word for ethnicity. And it clearly defines them as Gentiles. So Jesus places those who had faith in him on his right of his throne and those who rejected him on his left. This really captured me when I was studying this. One of the issues in our culture is that of racial injustices. We all agree that what happened with George Floyd was atrocious and justice was done. But since George Floyd, there has been a, a, a major hypervigilance towards racial issues, as there should be. But somewhere along the way, people have been divided on that on those very issues. And I don't want to get into specifics because I'm not here to give a political diatribe but i want to draw your attention to this future event event that jesus paints here in verse 32 and 33 did you notice there's only two groups of people standing before the throne of god saved and unsaved and those are the only two groups that 
God recognizes. In fact, the only thing that matters to God is whether you had faith in him, which will inform everything else in life. Now, we could eliminate all racism as an ill in our society, and we should. But without the gospel, it doesn't amount to anything. In God's mind, this is what matters because everything is a gospel issue. Everything else is secondary. Remember, the nations are standing before him. All ethnicities and races are standing before God to be a sheep or a goat. And racial disparity will not matter unless those who had faith in him produces good works. How do we solve the race problem? Come to faith in Jesus Christ and you will see that man is made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And you will value that person and not see them on the basis of the color of their skin, but on the basis that they are made in the image of God. Without the gospel and a change by the power of the spirit, we cannot see any way out of this mess. How do we expect racism to end without the transforming power of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit? How do we expect people to change prejudices towards races and social classes without faith and repentance in Jesus Christ? Telling those around us, stop being racist. Start feeding the poor. Is simply just moral moral empty, emptiness. It doesn't work because it's an immoral imperative that one cannot hear, adhere to without a changed heart. What we need to say is those of color are made in the image of God. So by disparaging them based on race or social class is an offense to God. It's a sin towards him that needs to be repented. Repent and turn to Christ. For if you hate your brother, then you also hate God. Turn to Christ so he can free you from the hate so that you will see your brother for what he truly is made in the image of God. We can't expect people to act morally without the power to do so. This is where we've lost in our culture, especially the church. Jesus Christ is the only one who can change a heart. Verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, come who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So what Jesus does here is he invites those who are blessed by the father to enter his kingdom blessed because they were chosen and elected by God through a changed heart, through the hearing of the gospel to receive by faith. This is important flow because the rest of this section flows. It shows that their acts of kindness and service flowed from a heart of thankfulness and gratitude. So the king commends them for their works. We are not saved by works. But our works should follow our faith. So they nursed Christ's people when they were injured or sick during the tribulation period. When Christ's people were thrown in jail during the tribulation period by the Antichrist, these people visited them in prison and encouraged them. Again, my eschatology. 
They never left them alone during their time of persecution. Works followed the believer's faith. And when the Holy Spirit enters into the believer, he cannot help but serve the Lord out of love and gratitude and see things for what they really are. It's what we're made to do. And of course they answer, when did we ever do these things to you, Lord? And they thought they were doing, they weren't doing so well. They thought, how in the world did we do that? They were just doing their duty in their minds. And they did what was expected of them. They weren't looking for accolades or props, but just having a simple faith and love in Christ caused them to perform supernatural works of God. Do you see the order here in this passage? First, they were blessed by God, then responded to the gospel and their hearts overflowed with gratitude. Then came acts of justice and kindness. To do acts of justice and kindness before faith in Christ is like putting the cart before the horse. But Jesus takes this so personal because justice is tied to his very nature. It is tied to his very nature. Jesus doesn't just execute justice. He is justice. For those of you who have children, you understand that when someone treats your children with kindness, it's as if they're treating you with kindness. If someone disparages your child, they're disparaging you. It's a package deal. So what about you and what about me? What motivates us to speak out against injustice? What motivates you to set things right in your society? Is it to have some sort of maybe a, a, a moral leg up? Or is it to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only message that we've been given to all of our societal ills? We can get people to behave and not be racist, but is their heart changed? Are they righteous before God? We can feed and clothe the poor, and we should, but to not share the gospel with them, we're just making them comfortable on the way to stand before a holy God. We can strive to achieve equality in our culture, but does that give us right standing before God? Again, I'm not despair. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just saying the gospel somewhere along the way in, in our, in our country, the gospel has been lost in all of this. We can save all the babies from abortion and we should. But if those children grow up and become rebellious and separated from God and not taught the scriptures or raise them in admonishing of the Lord, then is that true justice? We can encourage women who have decided not to have an abortion, but do we just leave them there and not care for them? Is that real justice? What about adoption? And of course, I have personal... Um, uh, well... I know about this one, but I, you know, we could have adopted Rachel, given her a nice home, decent clothes, a good education. But wouldn't it be a waste if she didn't know Christ? It's not either or, it's both and. And we should do these things. Of course, in verse 41, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. And he goes on, and you jump down to verse 46. 
and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So based on the previous verses here in the Olivet Discourse, these goats the, based there, the foolish versions that the virgins that Jesus describes in the previous verses. Excuse me. The basis of their judgment will be their failure to extend mercy to those who needed it. The goats are people who turned a blind eye to the needs of others. Those that were sick, hungry, thirsty, naked, and those that have the power to do so to meet those needs. They didn't do it. These goats are selfish. They live selfish lives of comfort and ease, a life free of concern for the needy. They live lives of self-indulgence and pleasure, a life of money and materialism. These goats were spiritually blind, blind to the truth about God and themselves. They suppressed the truth about God and chose to believe the lie. What about you and me? Are we any of these things? What has God endowed you with and bless you with to give away to others for his glory and to meet people's needs. Not I don't think God's asking us to save the world. I just think God is asking us to use what we have when he prompts us to use it to help those that are in need. And I am certainly convicted of this. How obedient are we with the resources that God has given us Do we just kind of hoard those to ourselves? And when we stand before the king, when I stand before the king, what will he say to me? The Lord has given you and me a talent, resources, but those resources have a shelf life and it won't last forever. Now here's the good news. Here's the gospel. Justice is when someone who is in a socially superior position steps in on behalf of the weaker party and delivers them from an oppressor. Of course, those who govern do so out of their vocation, but Christians do it out of their love for God. Here's where where God's definition of justice and the world's definition are far apart. Are you ready? Ready? By sending his son to die on our behalf, God stepped in to deliver those who were too weak to deliver themselves. But here's the difference. God is the one who was the aggrieved party. God is morally superior. He's the creator. He is the standard of righteousness and we violated it. Jesus not only stepped in and delivered us, he also performed justice so that his righteousness could be imputed to us as a free gift. Therefore, God is both the one who is just and the justifier and the one who justifies. God would be perfectly just, righteous and fair to send every one of us to hell. That would actually be fair. But God chose what is not fair to take the full brunt of the injustice that we are responsible for. What a savior we serve. 
This is how God addresses injustice. That's what makes the gospel so glorious. Let's say you're driving down the highway at a breakneck speed. You decide to floor it 100 miles an hour because you feel like being dangerous today. You're weaving in and out of traffic and you're recklessly putting everyone at risk around you. And all of a sudden you see the blue lights flashing behind you. So the officer pulls my wife off over off the side of the road. (laughs) And the officer... (laughs) And the... (laughs) And the officer says, ma'am, do you know how fast you were going? And she says, no, officer, how fast was I going? So he happens to show my wife the radar gun and says, yeah, you were going pretty fast. So he takes her driver's license and registration, goes back to his squad car and then comes back. Because, and he comes back with with a ticket and a court date. And he says to her, because of the nature of your speeding, you are charged with reckless driving and endangerment. And you are charged with the $20,000 fine that has to be paid in seven days or you spend three months in jail. And her heart sinks. What am I going to do? How am I going to cook dinner for my husband and do his laundry? And That's right. I have a family to provide for. How in the world am I going to do this? But then all of a sudden the officer pulls out his phone. And he opens up his cash app. And he says, ma'am, what's your username? And he, she gives it to him. He punches in the money and says, I just paid your fine. You're free to go. She's speechless. She doesn't know what to say. And she says, thank you. Profusely. He says, what can I do for you? And he says to her, just drive safely and warn people that if they continue to be reckless, they will die an early death. Tell them about me and how generous and merciful I am. Tell them I will pay their fine as well if they receive me. My wife is a good driver. True social justice, as Jesus has shown us, is when we act in mercy to those who don't deserve it. When we give up our own rights for the sake of the gospel and act in love and grace. That's the gospel. We talk so much in this country about our rights. What about my rights? But the truth is, Jesus gave up his rights. Jesus laid aside all of his deity. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus laid it all down. And we aggrieved him, but he administered justice on our behalf. In fact, he put it this way. When a Roman soldier demands that you carry his heavy pack for one mile, give up your rights and carry it for two. And carry it for two. We are children of God. And the gospel frees us 
to lay our rights aside and to give our lives for the one who gave his life for us. Brothers and sisters, we don't have the right to be right. We do have a duty to love as Christ loved us and to give ourselves away as he gave himself away to us. The world will exercise justice in order to gain a moral superiority over others. But gospel justice seeks to lift others up at the expense of ourselves to lead them to the justifier. The world does it to gain something, but Christians do it out of something already gained. The world does it to be accepted, but we do it because we have already been accepted. The peculiar justice of the cross. God meets his own righteous demands through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Without the peculiar justice of the cross, any attempt to do justice at all is just empty moralism. So how do we move forward? How do we apply this to our lives? How do we do justice in our daily lives by the power of God's spirit? It's ironic and very uh, divine that Fred mentioned John 13 about Jesus washing feet, because that's what I'm about to address here. I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but it says now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Picture the scene here. Jesus was about to be arrested and go to the cross and take the full brunt of God's wrath and take on himself the fullness of the raw sewage of human sin. Luke twenty two twenty four tells us that while they were in this upper room, the disciples starts arguing about who was the greatest among them. They hadn't a clue what was about to happen to their Lord. And here they're having a petty argument. That's like saying, well, you know, I can jump a little higher uh, than you. <laughs> like, what does it mean? This scene couldn't be any more intense. Now, in the middle of the disciples arguing, picture this. Jesus gets up, strips down to his underwear and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Instead of saying something like, hey, you idiots, what the heck is wrong with you? Can't you see what's happening here? Get a grip. He doesn't do that. He sees the disciples' egos on full display. So what does he do? Instead of grabbing a sword...
grabs a towel. And he restores them by serving them. He's serving the guilty party. Jesus was performing biblical justice. Jesus is calling you and me to clean up messes that we didn't make. He's calling us to exercise social justice by picking up a towel wherever we're at and start washing others at the expense of ourselves. There's power in that. That's justice. That's the gospel. And that is where God's power flows through our lives as a community. We don't have the right to complain about the culture's mess around us unless we are willing to pick up a towel and do something about it. But if you do pick up that towel, God will shine through you in ways you've never dreamed. He will reward you here and in glory and you will experience an intimacy with him like you've never felt. The greatest tool of justice in God's kingdom is a towel. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, forgive us. Forgive me for how often I complain about this politician or this policy or this injustice and not, Lord, not seeing you in all of that. Thank you for washing our feet. Though we were the ones who offended you. Thank you for being so kind and merciful and generous. May we be generous to others as you have with us. Lord, our world is going crazy right now in our country. We have left versus right. There's divisions. There's people pitted up against one another. But Lord, we're your church and we should not be divided. We should be united in you. So unite us, Father. Cleanse us. Stand us upright. And Lord, give us a, a, a hope and a heart and a towel to serve. And to love those who are oppressed and to give our lives to those, to our neighbor who's needy. We love you. We praise you in Jesus name. Amen.